Hello, and welcome to the Auditory Chronicles podcast, a monthly program bringing you short tales for your listening pleasure. I'm your host, John McKenzie. In this episode, we bring you an adaptation of a short story published in 1883. The tale begins with a businessman on the brink of financial ruin who is about to receive an unexpected visitor. Mr. Lismore and the Widow, adapted from the short story by Wilkie Collins. Ernest Lismore, a ship owner whose appearance proclaimed him to be in the prime of life, midway between 30 and 40 years of age, seemed to be out of spirits. It was generally known that he was seriously troubled about money matters. Late in the autumn, the day after Mr. Lismore appeared at a public meeting that was held at the Mansion House, London, a clerk entered his office and presented a visiting card. The visiting card was from Mrs. Mary Collander. Underneath her name, she had written these explanatory words important business. Does it look as if she wanted money? Mr. Lismore inquired. Oh dear no, she comes in her carriage, the clerk replied. Is she young or old? Old, sir. To Mr. Lismore, conscious of the disastrous influence occasionally exercised over busy men by youth and beauty, this was a recommendation in itself. He said, show her in. Observing the lady as she approached him with the momentary curiosity of a stranger, he noticed that she still preserved the remains of beauty. She wore her own gray hair, and her complexion bore the test of daylight. On entering the room, she made her apologies with some embarrassment. I'm afraid I have chosen an inconvenient time for my visit, she began. I am at your service, he answered, a little stiffly, especially if you will be so kind as to mention your business with me in few words. Mrs. Collander was a woman of some spirit, and that reply roused her. I will mention it in one word, she said smartly. My business is gratitude. He was completely at a loss to understand what she meant, and he said so plainly. Instead of explaining herself, she put a question. Do you remember the night of the 11th of March six years ago? He considered for a moment. No, he said. I don't remember it. Let me assist your memory, Mr. Lismore, and I will leave you to your affairs. You were on your way to the railway station at Bixmore to catch the night express to London. As a hint that his time was valuable, the shipowner had hitherto remained standing. He now took his customary seat and began to listen with some interest. It was absolutely necessary, she proceeded, that you should be on board your ship in the London docks at nine o'clock the next morning. Otherwise, the vessel would have sailed without you. On your way into town, your carriage was blocked by people looking at a house on fire. Mr. Lismore started to his feet. Good heavens, you were the lady of that house, he gasped. On the dark side of the burning house, I could not see clearly. You were fainting and I... Mrs. Collander, your poor husband. At his great age, he sank under the shock, she answered. And I have lost the kindest and best of men. Do you remember how you parted from him, you, the man who preserved his wife from a dreadful death? You threw your card to him out of the carriage window and away you went at a gallop to catch your train. In all the years that have passed, I have kept that card. And yesterday I saw your name on the list of speakers at the mansion house. She held out her hand. Mr. Lismore took it in silence and pressed it warmly, saying, I ceased to lead a sailor's life less than a year from the night of the fire. With a little inheritance, I started successfully in business as a shipowner. We little know, Mrs. Collander, what the future has in store for us. Mrs. Collander leaned forward and spoke discreetly. I heard a stranger at that public meeting say that you were seriously embarrassed by some failure. Mr. Lismore's handsome features hardened as if he were suffering. There was a knock at the door. The clerk appeared again with a card and a message from another visitor without an appointment. Mrs. Collander rose immediately. 
It is not my wish to offend you, but rather to prove myself to be your friend, she said, and pointed to her card on the writing table. Will you come to me tomorrow evening at that address? Like the gentleman who has just called, I too have my reason for wishing to see you. Mr. Lismore gladly accepted the invitation. Mrs. Collender stopped him as he opened the door for her. Are you married, she said, or maybe in love? He found it impossible to conceal his surprise, but he answered without hesitation. There is no such bright prospect in my life, he said. Forgive me, she resumed. At my age, you cannot possibly misunderstand me, and yet... She hesitated. Mr. Lismore tried to give her confidence. Pray don't stand on ceremony, Mrs. Collender. Nothing that you can say to me need be prefaced by an apology. With a little sigh, she left him. It sounded like a sigh of relief. Ernest Lismore was thoroughly puzzled. What could be the old lady's object in ascertaining that he was still free from a matrimonial engagement? She had described her feeling toward him as passing the ordinary limits of gratitude, and she was evidently rich enough to be above the imputation of a mercenary motive. When he presented himself at her house the next evening, would she introduce him to a charming daughter? He smiled as the idea occurred to him. An appropriate time to be thinking of my chances of marriage, he said to himself. In another month, I may be a ruined man. Mrs. Collender advanced to welcome her guest in a simple evening dress, perfectly suited to her age. All that had looked worn and faded in her fine face by daylight was now softly obscured by shaded lamps, her friendly tones, and her pleasant smile. Your beautiful house and your gracious welcome have persuaded me into forgetting my troubles for a while, he said. The smile passed away from her face. Then it is true, she said gravely. Only too true, he admitted. Let me tell you what my own pecuniary position is, she said. I am the childless widow of a rich man. Ernest paused. His anticipated discovery of Mrs. Collender's charming daughter was, he thought, a little romance that must return to the world of dreams. Mrs. Collender continued. I consider myself as merely performing a duty when I offer to assist you by a loan of money, though circumstances put it out of my power to help you unless I attach to my most sincere offer of service a very unusual and very embarrassing condition. If you are on the brink of ruin, that misfortune will plead my excuse. In any case, I rely on the sympathy and forbearance of the man to whom I owe my life. Then she said, Will you tell me what your present position is, at its worst? I can, and will, speak plainly when my turn comes, if you will honor me with your confidence. She observed him attentively. At first he hesitated, then he made amends by laying the whole truth before her without reserve. She summed up the result in her own words. Your solvency depends on an advance of twenty thousand pounds secured on a homeward-bound ship which is now overdue. If your overdue ship returns safely within ten days, you can borrow the twenty thousand pounds without difficulty. If the ship is lost, you have no alternative but to accept a loan from me. Is that the hard truth? It is, Ernest acknowledged. I have sought the help of capitalists and mercantile men whom I have assisted in the past, to no avail. Without the twenty thousand pound advance, ruin is certain. She laid her hand for a moment on his. I understand you, she said. If ruin comes, if ruin comes, he interposed, a man without money and without credit can make but one last atonement. I knew one of those men myself. He committed. Mrs. Collender interrupted her guest's grim conclusion. I have twenty times as much money as the advance you require, Mr. Lismore, at my sole disposal, on one condition. 
the condition you alluded to. Yes, she acknowledged. My husband's will grants to me what is called a life interest in his fortune, the whole of the 400,000 pounds, which may only be used in the maintenance of my lifestyle, she said. At my death, the remaining money is to be divided among charitable institutions, excepting a certain event. Her eyes looked away from Mr. Lismore as she spoke the next words. According to the will, I would become absolute mistress of the fortune on the one condition that I marry again. He looked at her in amazement. Surely I've mistaken you, he said. You mean on this one condition that you do not marry again? No, Mr. Lismore, I mean exactly what I have said. You now know that the recovery of your credit and your peace of mind rests entirely with yourself. The circumstances do not require you to pledge yourself to me absolutely. If your missing ship appears in time, the only reason for the marriage is at an end. We shall be as good friends as ever without the encumbrance of a formal tie to bind us. In the other event, I can with perfect propriety assure you that, at my age, I regard our marriage simply and solely as a formality which we must fulfill if I am to carry out my intention of standing between you and ruin, as you once stood between death and me. He rose. She stopped him with a gesture. It is understood, she continued, that you cannot in the course of nature be troubled by the society of a grateful old woman for many years. You are young enough to look forward to another marriage, one that shall be something more than a mere formality. If our arrangement proceeds, and you later meet with the happy woman in my lifetime, honestly tell me of it, and I promise to tell her that she has only to wait. After a moment of reflection, Mr. Lismore took Mrs. Collender's hand and raised it respectfully to his lips. You are a noble woman, he said. A man impenetrable to your kindness and generous forgetfulness of yourself might be able to resist your offer. I am not that man, he admitted, saying finally, I thank you with my whole heart. While the destiny of their future lives was still in suspense, an unacknowledged feeling of embarrassment on either side kept Mr. Lismore and Mrs. Collander apart. On the day before the shipowner's liabilities became due, the terms of the report from the city remained unchanged. No news of the ship. It was then that the matrimonial license was put to its contemplated use. Mrs. Collander's lawyer and her maid were the only persons trusted with the secret. With every pecuniary demand satisfied in full, the strangely married pair quitted England. The Lismores decided on pursuing their journey as far as Munich. They were soon established in a house large enough to provide them with every accommodation which they required. Mary's taste for music was matched by her husband Ernest's taste for painting. In his leisure hours, he cultivated the art and delighted in it. His days were passed in the picture galleries, Mary remaining at home devoted to her music until it was time to go out with her husband for a drive. Living together in perfect amity, they were nevertheless not living happily. Without any visible reason for the change, Mary's spirits were depressed. At the dinner hour one evening, Mary waited until the servant had withdrawn, then said, Now, Ernest, it is time to tell me the truth. Her manner, when she had said those few words, took him by surprise. Embarrassed on his side, he could only answer, I have nothing to tell. Were there many visitors at the gallery? She asked. About the same as usual, he responded. There was a pause. She looked away, but he saw it plainly. There were tears in her eyes. I think I will rest a little on the sofa, she resumed. In the position which he occupied, his back would have been now turned on her. She stopped him when he tried to move his chair. 
I would rather not look at you, Ernest, she said, when you have lost confidence in me. Not the words, but the tone touched all that was generous and noble in his nature. He left his place and knelt beside her and opened to her his whole heart about a woman he had been meeting in the gallery. Am I not unworthy of you? he asked when it was over. She pressed his hand in silence. You tell me that she is a copyist of pictures, his wife said. She will be interested in hearing of the portfolio of drawings which I bought for you in Paris. Ask her to come and see them. I shall be glad to become acquainted with her. I should be the most ungrateful wretch living, Ernest said, if I did not think of you and you only now that my confession is made. We will leave Munich tomorrow. Mary reminded him of her earlier words. When I thought you might meet another woman in my lifetime, I said to you, tell me of it, and I promised to tell her that she has only to wait. Ernest, she said, if you find her in the gallery tomorrow, I expect that you will not return alone. Bring her here. Mary rose abruptly from the sofa, kissed Ernest on the forehead, and before he could move or speak, she had left him. The next day, when Ernest returned from the gallery, the young lady he had met there returned with him to look at the drawings his wife had given him. The sitting room was empty when they entered it. Ernest rang for his wife's maid and was informed that Mary had gone out. Refusing to believe the woman, he searched the house. Mary was not to be found. When he returned to the sitting room, the young lady was unnaturally offended. He could make allowances for her being a little out of temper at the slight that had been put on her, but he was inexpressibly disconcerted by the manner in which she expressed herself. I have been talking to your wife's maid while you have been away, she said. I find you have married an old lady for her money. She is jealous of me, of course. You are wronging my wife, he answered. She is incapable of any such feeling as you attribute to her. The young lady laughed. At any rate, you are a good husband, she said satirically. Suppose you own the truth. Wouldn't you like her better if she was younger? Ernest was disgusted by the question. I confess you surprise me, he said coldly. The reply produced no effect on her. On the contrary, she became more insolent than ever. Your absurd way of taking a joke only encourages me, she went on. Suppose you could transform this sour old wife of yours, who has insulted me, into the sweetest young creature that ever lived by holding up your finger. Wouldn't you do it? This passed the limits of Ernest's endurance. He rose to go out of the room. The young woman ran to the door and placed herself in the way of his going out. He signed to her to let him pass. Suddenly, she threw her arms around his neck, kissed him passionately, and whispered with her lips at his ear. Oh, Ernest, forgive me. Could I have asked you to marry me for my money if I had not taken refuge in a disguise? When Ernest had sufficiently recovered to think, he put Mary back from him. He regarded her as she was, without the disguising makeup and persuasive powers of personation reminiscent of a stage actress. Is there an end of the deception now? He asked sternly. Am I to trust you in your new character? You are not to be harder on me than I deserve, Mary answered gently. Forgive me if I spoke harshly, Ernest said. You have put me to a severe trial. She burst into tears. Don't despise me, my dear. Remember that I had to save you from disgrace and ruin. Love, she murmured, is my only excuse. Love for the man who once risked his life to save mine. From that moment, Mary had won her pardon. Ernest took her hand and made her sit by him. I have known some miserable hours of doubt and shame since our marriage, she continued. When I went to see you in my own person at the picture gallery, oh, what relief, what joy I felt when I saw how you admired me. Not because I could no longer carry on the disguise. I hurried on the disclosure because I could no longer endure the hateful triumph of my own deception. I can't bear ever to see it. 
Mary abruptly left Ernest and returned with the false gray hair which had been a part of her disguise. She turned to the fireplace. Ernest took it from her before she could destroy it. Give it to me, he said. Why? Mary quietly inquired. Ernest drew her gently to his embrace and answered, I must not forget my old wife. We hope you've enjoyed our presentation of Mr. Lismore and the Widow, adapted from the short story by Wilkie Collins, as read by J.T. Be sure to join us next month for another tale of mystery and wonder. In the meantime, feel free to visit our website at auditorychronicles.com for an archive of previous episodes, as well as links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page. For Auditory Chronicles, I'm John McKenzie. Thanks for listening.